This is Radiance Tape number JD100. Jim Durkin covers the subject, The Power of Unity, in two messages. This is part of a series which was originally addressed to the Gospel Outreach Mobile Team while temporarily stationed at Bridgeport, Washington, April 1976. Now, let's take a look at this Bible study tonight. I'm going to start on a new subject and... The subject is God's principle of unity, the necessity of unity, and how unity works. Everywhere in the Bible, there are pictures of unity working. There are also pictures of the tremendous forces that are unleashed against the people of God to produce genuine disunity. I think, therefore, each of you need to give your most careful attention not to just learning it, like say, okay, what's that word now? Unity. I got it. Okay. Now, no, that's not what we're talking about because you are going to be the people who are going to carry this word and teaching back out into the body to instruct them in these principles of unity, of love, of no condemnation, of God's character building, working in ways. Everywhere in Scripture that wise men were operating, they strove always to preserve unity, not at all costs, but at all legitimate costs. Ignorant and foolish men care nothing for unity at all. They care only that they can obtain the end for which they have set themselves. Let it always be that the end for which we have set ourselves is to fulfill the purpose, the vision, and the work of God in this earth, that we may be able at the end of our days to hear from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, now I will make you ruler over many. Now, let me just read some scriptures first of all to give you some basic thoughts about the importance of the subject of unity. Turn with me to John 17, verse 21 to 23. Our Lord Jesus is praying to the Eternal Father. He has just prayed for his apostles which were with him at that time. And then in verse 20, says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. All right, now that brings it to us. And here's the prayer. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now notice how precious this goal of God must be. That Jesus, of all the things that he could have been praying about, because he's getting ready now to be crucified, to make the ultimate sacrifice which will redeem the world, he could have been praying for strength, he could have been praying for power, he could have been praying, rebuking the enemy, but he prayed for the most important thing he could pray for, that unity would prevail in the believers. 
Now, the reason for that unity, as he said, is that the world would believe that the Father sent him. Now, I can tell you before God that the man who sacrifices unity regardless of the reason, provided it's not an illegitimate yielding to get unity, because that is not unity. That's a fake kind of unity. But he sacrifices unity. Then he misses the whole point of the gospel, which is to bring about a condition among believers. I don't know how this will work. A condition among believers by which the world will believe that God sent Jesus into the world. Now, in the final analysis, only God can produce that unity. But we need to have a heart that desires that unity and desires it legitimately. So that we say, Lord, I see unity for the precious thing it is in itself. Now, it's not the end of our work, but it's a means to an end. The end being that God should be glorified by the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. See? That the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, that's the end. But the means to the end is unity. So we strive always, the Bible says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. But our human minds are so bent on not unity, but they're bent on an end. Maybe I desire a ministry, and I want that ministry. Or maybe I desire to do a certain work, and I desire it greatly. Or I desire to, and so that the means and the end are not clearly discerned, and we turn aside to another means and another end, and unity is sacrificed. Then my statement to you, and it should be your statement then to those whom you teach, no matter how successful that particular work no matter how powerful that work would become, it has missed the whole point and will never accomplish what it was intended to accomplish, and that is this, that the world would believe that God sent Jesus into the world. That's the thing we're moving toward. See? Now, often it has happened where and I'm going to go out here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to develop this and I'm going to take care of this, and then later they can point to, well, don't you see I have 500 or 50 or 5,000? or Don't you see that I have? God is not interested in works. God is interested in a work. And that is that the world will believe that God sent Jesus into the world. Okay? Now let's look at another scripture. John 10, 16. Here we have this same principle of unity being stated, but in a different way. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, 
and they shall hear my voice. Now, here's the work of God. But see, here are sheep of another fold. Here's sheep of one fold. Now, he's saying here's sheep of another fold. I must bring them, and then he must do something with these two folds. He will unify them. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Now understand that God gave to him this thing because he clearly understood his mission. He clearly understood his purpose to gather not sheep. I have a few sheep gathered. See, I did it. No. But to gather the sheep from this fold and this fold and then to bring them together and unify them so that there should be one fold and one shepherd. All right. One shepherd we have. One fold we do not have. Now then, what does that tell me? That the Spirit of God is intensely working at to do what? Always. Everlastingly, eternally working at one thing. To bring the sheep from this fold and this fold, Jew and Gentile, together one fold. Now, everywhere you look, you're going to see one message in the New Testament, one message in the whole Word of God. Unity in God, power. Unity in God, delight to the Eternal Father. Disunity, exhaustion, and failure. So, what we then need to say is, what is there about this unity? See, why is it not enough then for me just to go and do my work? Say, I'm doing my work. Well, you're doing your work. You're doing your work. You're doing your work. Because those works actually may be conflicting with each other. See, if you could see it like this. You remember the Bible says, Paul said, as a wise master builder, here's the blueprint, I've laid the foundation. I know what God is trying to build. So therefore, I will lay down the foundation of this building. Now, the foundation of the building that Paul laid down is that there should be one fold and one shepherd. One man has a vision only to build a little church and get 50 people in, or 100, or 500, or 50,000. Wouldn't make any difference, but that's what he sees, and that's all he sees. But don't bug me. Not interested in anything else, just my little deal here, and that's what I'm building. That's what God gave me to build, and that's all I'm building. Well, how about unity? Well, I'm not into that. I'm into building, and that's my... Well, that's not the foundation. It's not big enough. And therefore, sooner or later, as you try to build upward on it, because it's not big enough, you find at some point the building stops being built. It's also like a picture that in the mind of God, he sees this marvelous scene. Now, anyone else looking at it, here this thing, let's say, is 10,000 miles long, 10,000 miles high, a huge, marvelous, panoramic sweep of canvas, beautiful scenes and colors, and I stand here not quite six foot tall, and all my vision is centered in on little thing. And God hands me a brush, and he says, I want you to paint. I say, God, if I don't see what the whole picture is, how will I know what to paint? You see, 
I must be in tune with the unified building of the whole. Or I won't know. I just get up there and say, well, there, there's my work. What do you think about that? I says, no. That work does not fit. For it does not fit the unified whole of what I see. See, unity is the absolute essential. It is not things like, well, man, I'm into witnessing. No. Well, man, I'm into uh, pastoring. That's my thing. Boy, that's where I... No. No. All of that. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, elders, deacons, administrators, all of it is designed to bring the body into unity. Where there should be one shepherd and one fold in the world will say, God sent Jesus into the world. It's so. See, that's what we're talking about. Now, all lesser things are just exactly that, lesser things and should not occupy our attention. Many believers are totally self-centered. Their purpose is, God, what are you going to do for me today? And they're not into glorifying God. They're into God glorifying them. They're completely reversed. Well, there is no unity there at all, because they don't even understand there should be any unity, and they're totally walking just... Now, if you say, okay, what are you building? We ask them now. Well, uh, since they're into their own needs, well, I'm building for my security because I must feel secure, and I'm building for my happiness because I must feel happy. You see, I, I don't feel happy, and I'm really into this thing about the family because that's what makes me really feel good, and I look good to my neighbors. I'm really into that. See, the house they're building has nothing to do with what God told them to build. They're just, they're off over here doing something utterly out of unity, out of step with the whole thing God is saying, here's the way I'm going. They're saying, no, God, stop. Come over here and bless my building. God says, I cannot do that. You must come over here and work my building. See? Now, this is the unity we're speaking of, that we see that common purpose, that we see that common vision, and then our particular working within the context of that purpose and vision fits in with that. In other words, we receive from God, this is what we are to do while we're in this earth. Because you see, otherwise to say, I am glorifying God is only an abstract concept. It's kind of a, a dreamy concept. Somehow I'm glorifying God. But you look at the works, though, and you say, well, that person doesn't even know what it means to glorify God. They're actually glorifying themselves, but they don't know the difference. See? Unity is really tied, almost like integrally tied in with the work that we do on this earth. So that's why the Bible says we were created to walk in good works, and we must keep bringing forth these good works. Well, the good works are the parts of that building which go to building. See? So it's not just enough to abstractly agree with it, it must be practically manifested. And that's why ministries are raised up. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, elders, all these things come. A clear picture of what we ought to be doing while we're on this earth. Yeah, I think as we get along, I think many of the concepts of unity and disunity will clear up as we begin to see what it is 
that God is saying is the unity that he is looking for. Now, let it pass out of your mind, please, that it's a feeling or just an abstract, we're not talking about any abstract concept at all, we're talking about an intensely practical thing that will manifest itself in everything that you do on this earth. And if you have that concept of what to be doing, every step will count. Then it can truly be said, a man's whole life is his ministry. See, one of the things that people who do not understand properly the concept of unity and God's purpose and direction, they think ministry is picking up the Bible and preaching. Well, that's ministry, I agree. But when I'm sleeping at night, to me, that's ministry. See, a person say, well, how could that be ministry, man? You're just laying there sleeping. Oh, no, I'm ministering. Because my whole being is given over to one thing, to direct my efforts toward the building that God has given us to do on this earth. My sleeping is directed toward rest to build the building. My recreation is directed toward refreshing myself to build the building. My food, I thank you, Lord, for this food which you have given to me. Bless it to my body. May it give me strength to complete your work. My eating is a ministry. Whatever I do, that's my ministry. So my whole life is my ministry. I don't say, well, I'm going to minister on Sunday and the rest of the week I'm going to. Oh, no. I minister 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I know nothing but ministry. See? Now, but you can't think that way unless you understand unity with God in those purposes. See? Amen. Mothers, you think raising children is ministry? Boy, I do. If that's not ministry, we've missed the whole point of it. See, that's ministry. You're preaching a whole sermon continually, day after day, to your children. Amen. Okay, let's read another scripture here. Luke 24, 53. Now we're beginning to get into some practical expressions of unity. This is after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has now gone back to be with the Father. Look at verse 51. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually, now notice this, here's this band together, one heart, one mind, they're not yet filled with the Spirit, but what were they doing? Continually, that's the key word, continually, notice the unity of mind, purpose. Notice now, this is no longer an abstract concept. See? Now, would it still have been unity if one said, well, um, I think I'll go to the temple and praise God. I don't think I will. I think I'm going fishing. Uh... I don't think I'm going to do either one. I think I'm going to sleep. No, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to... Now, in an ordinary course of events, that would be perfectly all right. One is here, one is here, one is much variety. But in that particular situation, Jesus told them, tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. See, here was a command from the sovereign of the universe. Do this. 
And they heard that. Now, when they heard that from their resurrected Lord, they, what, practically manifested the unity. See? They were not off doing this and this and this. They were doing one thing. They were either in that upper room or they were in the temple continually praising and blessing God until the Spirit was poured out upon them. When the Spirit was poured out upon them, some other very remarkable things began to happen now. All right? Let's turn to Acts 2.1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, isn't it an interesting thing that the Spirit takes time to mention something unique about them? See, if I'd have been saying it, I'd say when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in the upper room together. Wouldn't that have been a good description? Yes, it would have been a good description identifying where they were, but the Holy Spirit is not interested in identifying where they were. He was interested in identifying what state of spirit and mind they were in while identifying where they were. And what state of mind were they in? They were in one accord. See? Now, do you notice here's diversity? If you were to ask him, say, what's your occupation? Well, I'm a fisherman. What's yours? Well, I'm a tax gatherer. What's yours? Well, I was a... You know, all of them describing different... So they all have different backgrounds, different minds, different thoughts, different this. But at this point, practically, they're all doing what? Their whole minds are melded into one accord while they are waiting for the Spirit to come. Now... If you can begin to grasp the extremes to which the Holy Spirit will go to bring us to unity, we literally have to resist that unity. Because once the people of God really come into unity in regard to anything, then there is a release of God's mighty force and power in the earth that sweeps everything before it. See? Jesus said, when we have the Spirit, in the right way now. now. I know a lot of people have the Spirit. And man, they have no more rivers of living water gushing out of them. They have rivers of dry sand gushing out of them. Just blah, 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 blah. And nothing comes out. But when we're in that right place of unity, rivers of living water and life flows before us. Everything we touch springs up with life. And there's fruit everywhere. Now, when there is not a river of living water, Things dry up, and the parching of the sun takes over, and the desert begins to get brown, and everything dies, and it just lays there until once again we come into unity, and then rivers of living waters begin to flow out of us again. See? All right. He speaks in salvation. He said, you receive that salvation. And he says, yes, there'll be a well of life springing up within you. But he said, if you receive the Spirit, there shall be rivers of living water flowing out of you. So see, one is salvation springing up within you, the other is living waters flowing out of you. But it requires unity. Not a result of going to an altar and somebody laying hands on you and you talk in tongues. Say, wow, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. In a sense, that's true. But it takes that practical unity, that I'll describe a little later, to cause rivers of water to flow out. And no ministry is effective without rivers of water flowing out. It just is not effective. No life can come. Okay.
Well, I was going to read on there in Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, see, when that happened, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, do you think their testimony was unified? Did you hear that now? Do you think their testimony was unified? One mind, one accord, and they all spoke one thing, even though they were all speaking in different languages. They were voluntarily there seeking God, and then they got in such a state, and that's the beauty of it, such a state of mind where they were utterly melted with God and melted with each other, the Spirit. Now that's what we're aiming at. And everything must be done to produce that state of mind, that unity. And we must keep that, endeavoring to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. All must be sacrificed for that. See? Okay. Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly. Now, what does that word mean, steadfastly? Yeah, they were resolutely, permanently, unmovably attached to something. Now, what were they unmovably attached to? The apostles' doctrine. Something was laid down. They said, this we believe, and this we will do. They, they received direction. They continued in fellowship. They continued in the breaking of bread. Now, some believe this means communion. Others believe it means eating together. I think it's one of those beautiful statements. Probably means both. I know I enjoy eating with the saints, and I enjoy taking communion with them also, and in prayers. And fear came on every soul. Now, notice this, see, this statement about unity. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, they were all one accord, and suddenly... There came a rushing mighty wind. See, when that state was reached. Now, here we have another statement of unity. They continued steadfastly in, and fear came upon every soul. See, tremendous force. So the people said, this is the work of God. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all the believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with what? One accord. See, now this emphasis again and again cannot be accidental. It is there to teach us a lesson, a principle, if we are ready to see the principle. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house that eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, oneness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord. See, now here's a statement of unity again. And the result is having favor with all the people and the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. See, just unity, power. Unity, power. Unity, power. We're not talking about anything abstract at all. We're talking about something that releases the very life of God into the earth. And without it, 
The life of God is bottled up within the saints, and they walk around saying, where is revival? Where is revival? Waiting only for one thing. Let the brethren dwell together in unity and... And the world says, this is the hand of God. Now let me read a couple more scriptures on this particular subject, and then we'll probably wind it up for tonight. I think you're grasping the, the point, though. Acts 6. Notice now the first attack of the enemy to produce disunity. Okay? Here they're going as powerful unity. People are being saved right and left, man, that's filled with the Spirit, great fear upon all. The gospel is moving in great power and so forth. And now over a very important thing in one sense, but not compared to maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, not compared to carrying out the purpose and the vision, not compared to, but there's a principle that we need to know about. And I think we need to understand that principle so clearly we won't be tricked by it. All right, now here's the principle. I know there are some millions of people in China that are Christians. Those people have steadfastly held forth for the Lord Jesus. I don't know if they've done it publicly or had to hide in the catacombs, but they have not denied him, and they've been faithful martyrs, many of them. And my heart goes out to them. I care for them. All right, I'm thinking right now about them. I'm saying, oh, God, I pray that you help them, that you speak to the rulers of that country, that you... Now, see, my heart is moving right now. And yet I can tell you, right now, right while my heart is moved, and it is moved even though I'm giving you an illustration, but just the moment that I think of it, a burden is fine. Yet if someone took a hammer and struck me on the toe, see, something of far less consequence than the millions of persecuted Chinese and the terrible oppression and bondage, yet I can tell you my whole being would stop that conscious prey, stop that spiritual movement, and I would center in totally on me. And not even all of me, just one tiny point of me. I would have no other interest. If a person say, man, how about the 30 million, how about, how about, say, you crazy, get out of here, Mike. Now, if you can understand how Satan can take you or a little piece of you, and disrupt the whole flow of God, you'll be much better prepared to deal with the devices of the enemy. I don't like this because I... How come I had to wash dishes twice in a row? I'm sick of this miserable mess and I'm going to... Neither be murmurers or complainers as some of them were. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. See, But we don't understand the devices of the enemy. And so he pulls some punk deal off, and we're... Because he said, hey, 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 let me deal with the pain in my toe. But let me get back as quickly as possible to what really counts. 
Now, if he can get you off the subject with a pain in your toe, then he'll give you a pain in the finger next, and then a pain in the ear, and then a pain in the leg, and then a pain in the stomach, and then a pain in... And you just keep... And now let's see what happened. All right, sixth. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. All right, now they were all eating together, and somebody didn't get as much food as somebody else did. And here's this great revival going on, and souls are coming in, and people are being saved, and all this is going on, all people are rejoicing, and healings are taking place, and people are being filled with the Spirit. And they all sit down to eat, and somebody says, how come your piece of roast beef is bigger than mine? I got a right to it. Oh, no, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. And a whole revival. That's the device of the enemy. That's exactly the device of the enemy. Not to say to us, give up the purpose and the vision. Get you blown out over who burned the toast. Or somebody didn't leave enough hot water for my shower, ran out right in the middle as I was washing my hair. And I'm talking about practical things. We're not talking about abstraction. We're talking about very practical things. And I've got to learn to say, hey, 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 hey. I'm called to war. Now, you see, when a man is really called to war and he's a soldier, do you know that many times he can be shot and bleeding and keep on fighting? He's trained to be tough. He's trained to be tough. Because he knows that's a deadly enemy out there. And, man, he better keep on pulling that trigger as long as he can pull it. Because one bullet might make the difference. He knows that. And he's trained to take it. Well, the Bible says you also, as soldiers of Jesus Christ, do what? Endure hardship. Hardness is what King James says. Hardship would be the idea. Because it toughen you up. Bam, 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 bam. Be your tough. A boxer learns how to be tough. What would take us out in a moment? Somebody take one of those big maul fists and wham! I say, that's enough. I don't want to fight anymore. But a boxer's trained to take it until their knees are bending and their mind is swimming and still they're punching and they never know when one punch may land and they win anyhow because they're trained to be tough. They've got their mind on one thing, win. Now the Bible says about you and I, run that race so as to win. Amen? Run it so as to win. Amen. Jim Durkin presents a concluding message on the same subject, the power of unity. Speaking of the power of unity, how unity works, how it is produced, and who it is produced by. Now, always, of course, it is produced by God. Always it is produced by God. Humans do not produce unity. Not the kind of unity spoken of in Scripture, but ordinary worldly men understand the power of unity, 
and they do everything in their power to create unity. Now, for instance, you'll hear about a political party. They say, let us come together in unity. If we do not come to unity, then the other party will win. We must be in unity. We must have a unified platform. We must have a unified... They understand the power of unity. You take a business establishment. It understands the power of unity. It says, here is our goal. We wish to manufacture a certain product. We wish to manufacture it at the lowest cost. We wish to sell it at the highest price. We wish to get the largest part of the market. And in order to do that, every one of us have to give ourselves to that goal. And so in order to produce unity, they use incentives. To use Jefferson's word, they use coercion. They will induce unity by whatever means they possibly can. They will promise people great promotions. They will give them stock options, tremendous pensions, great bonuses, all kinds of things to get one thing, unity. So every person saying, I've got one thing in mind, and that is that I will. They understand the power of unity. And consider that they never achieve unity. They only achieve a high degree of cooperation. But even there, they have built factories which have flung products around the world. They have put together pieces of metal and cloth and whatever that has flown to the moon in return. They have taken pictures of Venus and Mars and explored far out into space and far down into the depths of the ocean. They have drilled deep into the earth and brought up the oil and converted it into all kinds of fantastic products. All because they understood the power of unity. Now to take another example of it, go back to the Tower of Babel. This leader, probably Nimrod, he understood the power of unity. He said, let us build us a tower and let us take a name, lest we be scattered abroad. He said, keep them together and keep them focused on one thing. God went down to the earth and said, what is this now that these people have begun to do? And this they begin to do, and now nothing shall be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Now notice, please, imagine to do. All right? Now what do you think, one of the principles which we will teach on certainly, but you know the name for it, it's a two-word idea. What would be another word, something you have imagined to do? That's base picture, right? Power didn't exist. This concept didn't exist. He's beginning to plant something in their minds. Now God says this which they have imagined to do, and now nothing shall be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So God came down and confounded their language, and pretty soon they couldn't speak to each other anymore. In other words, they were not speaking the same thing and men left off the building of the tower because what had come into their midst? Disunity. Now, do you see that the scientific community, they said, let's not speak in our native language. Let's not speak in English or Russian or French or... But let us find a common language. 
And to the degree that they're finding a common language where knowledge is able to pass back and forth freely, unless the government deliberately hides it, what is happening to the scientific community? Able to accomplish almost anything it sets its mind to do in the physical because it has a certain degree of cooperative unity. It's not godly unity. But wherever men come together in a common mind, a common language, a common speaking, and something comes into their imagination which they clearly see as worthy of doing, then a power is released to do that far out of proportion to the number of people who have come together. 120 come together, turn all Israel upside down. 120 come together, and 3,000 are born in the kingdom, and then boom, 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 boom. And what does Satan try to do? Bring disunity into the group. Now, keep in mind the extreme importance of unity, Satan's efforts to overthrow it, and the fact that you are equippers of the saints to bring them to the unity of the faith. Amen? Okay. Now, take a scripture. See yourself this way. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians 4. Verse 9. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles. See? Now ask yourself this question. If there had been some better method of producing this thing that I'm speaking of, God would have given us the better method. But of all the possible methods, now think about this, of all of the possible methods, gifts, functionings, that God could have come up with, he chose the one best out of all of the million combinations of possibilities that he could have given to the church. Now, what does he give us? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. I'll read about that in a little bit. But I want to show you that he did not give us just men called apostles. What an apostle is, if you can recall that Jesus was the apostle, well, now, it meant that Jesus, in equipping the saints which were around him, acted in a certain way toward men, spoke in a certain way toward them, which equipped them. One phase of that equipping could be called apostolic. Differentiate this, please, from the fact that an apostle may go out and establish a work. That's establishing a work. But the work of an apostle is the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So one way Jesus worked toward his disciples to equip them could have been called apostolic. He planted something in them which changed them from ordinary men and women to very special, unique men and women ready to finish the work. Now, another way in which he worked on them at another time could be called prophetic. God the Father moving upon him and then him speaking, it was prophetic, but that equipped the saints in yet another facet of their nature because God has made the nature of man.
then it's also to be said that he acted toward them pastorally, which equipped them in another way, evangelistically, which equipped them in another way, as a teacher, which equipped them in another way, as an elder, which equipped them in another way, the servant of God, the deacon of God. Now, we see that most clearly when in a certain place they're all gathered together. And what does he do? He takes off his clothes, girds himself with a towel, and he washes their feet. Remarkable. The deacon of God, the humble servant. Now he said, you call me your Lord. He said, that's right. Now he said, if I, your Lord, wash your feet. Now this is equipment. Now, when he ascended up on high, he gave gifts unto men, some apostles. Now, what did he really give the church, though? An aspect of himself, that apostolic aspect, working through ordinary men. See, it is the man which is the gift, but it's really the gift which is in the man, which is the real gift. And it's an aspect of the Lord that that man does not really control. It isn't like he generates apostolicism or something like that. It's something that's in him. And if he's simply walking with the Lord, that gift functions. So that when he's dealing with men, whether one at a time or a hundred at a time, he is implanting something of that apostolic nature and gift in them to the degree that they are receiving it. Say, I receive you as an apostle. Now they say, I don't receive you as an apostle. Then they receive nothing. They might receive the word and say, well, I hear the word. I believe you're a man of God or uh, I believe you're a Christian or I believe... But when they say, I believe you're an apostle, then that apostolic function moves. Same with a prophet. Same with a teacher. Same with an evangelist. Same with a pastor. Same with an elder. I don't receive you as an elder. Then they receive no benefits. of the. I don't receive you as a deacon. No benefits. I receive you as a deacon. Then the heart of the deacon is passed. So what did the Lord really give us? Not gifts. In the sense of, oh, here's a gift. Not gifts, but himself in men, equipping the saints. Now then, I believe you are equippers of the saints. You are equippers in one of a number of ways. Either you might be an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, a pastor, a teacher, an elder, a deacon, or you might simply be which is no simple thing, but simply be what the Bible describes Paul and Barnabas took with them John to their minister. And he went along with them, served them, set them free for certain tasks in the gospel that they had to do, but I'm sure at times he opened the word of God and began to minister. He also was an equipper of the saints. Now, later on, though John slipped and messed up a little bit, Later on, Paul says about John, the minister, bring John with you, Mark, writer of the gospel. Mark, bring Mark with you. He is profitable to me in the ministry. Equipper. Now, the way I see you is as equippers of the saints. Now, before that will be real in its manifestation, what must also be true? You must see yourself that way. You must say, 
Yes, Lord, I'm an equipper of the saints. That's my work. All right, now, let's see what happens as a result of that. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, once again, can that be done one at a time? Well, I see the greatest equipper of the saints that ever existed, the Lord himself, stopping by one fallen woman at a well and equipping her to go in and bring a whole town out. Say, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Now, where did she get that concept? Where did she get that boldness? Where did she get that power? Where did that enthusiasm, where did that dynamic come from? And say, it's real, he's out there. And here they all come and listen. And they say, now we believe not because of your word, but we have seen him ourselves. Yeah, we know this is the Christ. See? Well, isn't that what we do? We minister the gospel, but people can say, I don't believe just because you minister to me, but the Holy Spirit now has come to me, and I know that I'm saved. This is real, see? Equipment of the saints. Okay, you are those equippers. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So this building up of the body of Christ, this equipping of the saints for the work of service goes on until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's part of it, to impart that knowledge to them. To a mature man, that's the bridge of going from immaturity to maturity as these principles are practiced. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now tell me, how are we equipping them? What should our vision be about equipping the saints? How should we see the end result of our work to be? Complete to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here's this great body of saints walking through the earth, equipped, full-grown, mature, expressing the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our work. See, our work is not just, well, getting people saved, or our work is to make people happy, or our work is to... Our work is no less than to bring the body to unity, bring people to that utter conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ, to fill the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ, to present every man complete in Jesus Christ. That's our work. Now, we need a high calling and a high vision for that. You know, I'd be, oh, well, I... Uh, I don't see it. I, uh, I feel uh, uh, I'm not the guy for that. I feel I... You are the guy for that. You are the gal for that. You are those equippers. You must turn your faith loose and say, Lord, I believe. See, there are many, many ministers and many saints who don't believe the church is ever going to come to unity. They don't believe it. No, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But I believe it. I believe you believe it. And I think that faith will ultimately bring it to that perfect unity. See? So we're talking about equipping the saints to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Nothing less than that is our goal. I'm not just trying to get people to heaven. See, I'll just hold them and just get them to heaven. Trying to get people to heaven. Holy Spirit's going to get them to heaven. 
But there is an operation of the Holy Spirit in my life which is a dynamic to bring people to the stature of the fullness which is in Christ. Then, as that takes place, let's see what it goes on to say. All right, 13th verse, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We say, why no? That's not correct. It does not measure up to the principles of God. It does not measure up to that. See, we know what we know, and we can't be blown about. So someone goes, I got this fantastic new... Say, sorry, that doesn't fit. I have this new revelation. Say, yes, that does fit. Let's hear it. They not blown about, but as mature men and women making right judgments about what we hear. So we're no longer blown about. There's some people blown about. Every new little thing come along. They just, what's this new thing, man? I'm not ready. Whenever you hear that kind of you know one thing, they don't understand the principles upon which the whole of God's word is founded. There's no understanding of it. And so they have nothing to do but thoughts pass through their mind. And, yeah, maybe that's it. Or maybe this is it. Maybe that's it. But the man who understands his conscience exercised to discern good and evil, knowing the principles of the word of God, says, no way does that fit. Sorry, I can't be moved from this position. He knows what he knows. All right. No longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth in love, because we know it and we've experienced it, we are to grow up in him in all aspects. Okay? I have an aspect, you have an aspect, another, and we're to impart that until they grow up in him in all aspects. Who is the head, even Christ, from whom? The whole body. Being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working. See? Why the proper working of each individual part? Because they're equipped. They know how to work. Here's my hand. As a baby, put a ball in the baby's hand, and he, you say, he hasn't learned to throw. But after he gets a little older, you say, here's how you throw, and then you show him how to throw. And here's how you get more accuracy. And then he practices and practices, and pretty soon that hand is equipped, trained into his brain and mind and his proper functioning of every part. says, see a target over there? I'm going to hit that. Wham. say, wow, that guy can throw. Yes, he can, because he has become equipped to throw. Now, the point that we have brought out and one of the problems that we have to watch in our dealing with the saints is you have three aspects in dealing with a saint. One is you must feed them food convenient for them. If you do that, they will grow. See? As a matter of fact, I can tell you they'll grow even if you do a raunchy job of it, as long as you give them enough nourishment to get by. So as newborn babes, it says desire the what? Sincere milk of the word. 
that you may grow thereby. So you grow on this sincere milk of the word. You grow all right. But if that child is to be healthy, it needs more than just growth. It needs exercise so that the coordination begins to develop and the so it needs food for growth. It needs exercise for strength, stability, coordination. But finally, it needs something else because those two things by itself will never prepare the child to live in this world. What's the third thing it needs? It needs to be equipped. Isn't that the purpose of education? Or you send them off to a trade school, or you say, come on in the shop now, son, I'm going to teach you how to make cabinets, or I'm going to teach you how to fix a car. Now the child goes out in the world equipped. It can read, it can write, it can figure, it can do a trade, it can work. Now the child then has grown, Exercise so it's strong, fully equipped. And we say, go, son. But if you're in trouble, dad's here. Mother's here. So there's the covering. See, natural illustration, spiritual illustration. Same thing exactly. From whom the whole body fitted together. By that, whichever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And once that's properly functioning, What now begins to happen in terms of soul winning? Who now is doing it? The body itself is building itself up in love and just simply fully equipped for service, fully equipped for ministry, and just simply reaching out and just growing. Now, some other scriptures. Turn with me, please, to Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Now, what is that speaking of? The basic form of unity. Two walking together. Two ready to help each other. Two ready to cover each other. Two ready to protect each other. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Rhetorical. Cannot. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. You're all alone, isolated. The devil comes to you and starts working on you. You might go down. Two can resist him, but a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So the more, now notice what he says, two can resist him, but three, not quickly torn apart. Well, what then about four, or five, or fifty, or five hundred, or five thousand? Do you see, brothers and sisters, the more skillful we become at building unities, the more powerful is that force of God, that life of Jesus, which works through us to bless the whole world. That's why I tell you, learn to become builders of practical unities. Learn to become builders of ministries. Learn to become builders of works. Learn to become builders of... Make that your study. Make that your work. Make that your life. Give yourself to it. That your profiting may appear to all. See? But otherwise, get in this thing, what about this? What about this for me? I want this. I want this. I want many things. 
But I've learned a secret. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, what causes disunity? Differing visions or purpose? That's why we preach much on the purpose and the vision, that it be a very clear direction. The desire for personal disciples, not letting that discipling take place with apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, elders, deacons, and in other words, the many facets of the body working on say, these are my disciples. No such thing as my disciples. You are not my disciples. You're the Lord's disciples, even though I am a disciple, but I can't disciple you. See, that must be the work of many, many people to produce disciples. All right. The need for their own place. In other words, I have my own ministry. I want to do my own thing. That can cause disunity unless it's handled very carefully. Lack of submission can cause disunity. Immaturity is usually the cause of lack of unity. And then the wrong application of God's word. Practical unity must exist or the whole thing will collapse and no total unity will emerge. Is There will be a moving out of the disunity to establish something else so that the unity may be restored. See, without unity, ruin follows. So we must be given at all times to one aim, and that is that we be in unity. Work to find one person, then two persons, three. Now here, fortunately, there's a hundred that I believe you're grasping the supreme importance of unity and saying, okay, let's make it come together. Is that what you're seeing? Amen.